0: Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Corey Clipston, CEO of Swan Bitcoin. We talk about his path from broadcast journalism, consulting to venture capital. Corey also tells us about how he went from managing an altcoin fund to becoming a Bitcoin maximalist. Corey Clipston, how's everything going, man? Man, out here on the
1: battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> you feel like you're at war? Is that what you're saying? It's felt like that for the last two months or so for sure. Yeah. When mm. I mean, we have some significant adversaries, and uh, just, you know, glad to glad to be doing my part. <laughs>
0: Well, so it is interesting because you you've been abnormally prescient in sort of seeing this stuff coming. But before we get to all of that, let's talk about your backstory, like because uh, I I find this part kind of fascinating. Because I mean, you weren't always the Bitcoin maximalist that you are now.
1: So. No, it's your fault, Jimmy.
0: Well, before we get to that, let's talk about your background. Where are you coming
1: from? What's your story? What's your Bitcoin origin story? Sure. I mean, I I can go way back. And then I think it actually is kind of interesting, even though all paths Mm -hmm. lead to Bitcoin, everybody's path is different. So I grew up in Northern Cali and then Seattle. The interesting tweak there is my parents met on Haight-Ashbury, even though they're like nice Midwestern people that went to college and everything. So they were like spiritual seeking hippies. So I was basically Mm -hmm. raised on and off of a commune, you know, with like meditation, yoga, (laughs) service, (laughs) vegetarianism and all that, Mm -hmm. you know, in the late 70s and early 80s before going to Seattle. So I often joke when I got to public school in Seattle in fifth grade, I was essentially like an immigrant to this country. So I just think (laughs) that's kind of a funny little foundational story that's made me maybe slightly more observant. But also, mm. although alt-coiners may not agree, i uh, actually more empathetic than a lot of other people because I, I had that sort of outsider's beginning. Mm. Even though I'm like a six-foot-four, <laughs> blonde-haired, blue-eyed, wasp-looking dude, <laughs> I've always been a little bit more comfortable mixing with people from, uh, from other backgrounds because I felt like mm. that. So that's kind of interesting. I actually started out in journalism. I uh, you know did the mm. paper all through high school. I was convinced I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. I went to University of Missouri uh, dead set on being on CNN or ESPN. And, you know, I, I tried it. I, uh, I got on the local NBC station as a junior. So I did about a year of local news and sports reporting and anchoring the Today Show morning cut-ins at like the 25 and the 55 (laughs) with a (laughs) pencil necked 19-year-old in an ill-fitting suit uh, with my neck sticking Mm. out of there. I am not the boom goes the dynamite guy. That was another guy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So that was fun. But it was, you know, it was late 90s. I didn't like it. I actually really wasn't enjoying TV. It wasn't what I thought it would be. And, you know, then you find out that you don't really get paid well for 20 years or something as a guy post-college and the internet was blowing up. I was, I'd been online since 93 or something like that. And that just started to suck up more and more of my attention, kind of like Bitcoin does now. So instead Mm. I went to Microsoft, interned there in Redmond in 98, went to work for them full-time in New York in 99. And the next, you know, 15 years was just mostly working for big companies. And like, I was still kind of stuck in a, uh, if you keep on putting good things on your resume and, you know, choose the jobs that everybody else wants, then, <laughs> you know, like things will work out. And it, it was weird. It leaked out. Like the things that actually like brought me joy leaked out. And that's why I was probably, you know, a functioning alcoholic from like 18 to 32 is because I wasn't getting any sort of fulfillment from my daytime pursuits. But I worked mm-hmm. for Microsoft, Morgan Stanley, uh, McKinsey and Company, the management consulting firm, and then uh, eventually Google. And Hmm. got an MBA in finance and entrepreneurship at University of Chicago in 2004. Did a lot of stats work while I was there. That's kind of usually been my favorite subject. So you can imagine why I like to see stats work done well, (laughs) even though it's been a while (laughs) since I practiced. And yeah, I think the other thread that I think is kind of interesting to pull at is I was in online in New York, which was you know, maybe the second epicenter of the dot-com boom and bust, and probably had a worse mm. bust in percentage terms as far as all the companies there really going mm. to zero, whereas there were still some remnants of things in Seattle and the Bay Area that continued. Mm. Almost everything went to zero in New York. And I think that made me want to go to business school and work in more traditional things because I was upset that the sand had shifted beneath my feet and it didn't feel like it was my fault in the dot-com bust. And then when the global financial crisis rolled around, you know, I'm sitting here working in management consulting and it's happening again. And I'm like, man, it's all bullshit. really. (laughs) You know? And so the only thing I felt, I felt like, okay, the only way I'm going to be able to like not keep on having, the sense of sort of insecurity with these companies is I've got to be much more early stage where I have a lot more control. It's kind of, I, I just want to bet mm. on myself. So was, at that point, I think it was 2009 or 2010. I decided that, okay, I'm definitely going to work in early stage startups. Couldn't figure out how to get there from here. Only companies that wanted to hire me was like series E startups, putting me in a you mm. know VP strategy role, which sounded like more of the same. So I went to Google basically as internet business school, and Mm. used that to network like crazy with founders and vcs met probably a thousand people in a couple of years leveraging the google.com email address and the linkedin and and yeah by 2013 i moved after getting married we moved out to la and it was really probably for proximity to sf that i did that because i would just start going up you know every week every other week sometimes two or three times in a week and just doing the startup advising thing, cutting angel checks and just kind of dipping my toes in that. I left Google summer of 13 and I've been in startups full time for the last 9 years. Invested in over 50 companies, advised a bunch, probably 20 or 30 of them, always doing like strategy and fundraising stuff with with venture back CEOs. And you know, it's been a it's been a really good run. It was a good run basically this whole time and then mm-hmm. Bitcoin after two swings and misses, <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally got my attention in the, in the price run up in spring of 17. And, you know, like a lot of people whose frame of reference was tech and Silicon Valley, and you're used to taking the advice of Andreessen Horowitz and union square ventures. And, you know, they're all saying that there's this amazing, innovative boom going on in ICO land. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they weren't calling them friction tokens at the time. Everybody, every marketplace was supposed (laughs) to have its own token. And I had this like 50 page document that was like the foundation of this friction token fund that I was going to start targeting all these marketplaces, you know, that were like series C, series D, uh, Silicon Valley companies, like all these big plans and, you know, it just, get caught up in the price run up and all these ICOs. And then I started consulting for Block V, which was the guys that actually initially started Tether had done, you know, sort of like an early proto NFT startup. And it's like, Mm. sometimes the signals are just like off because they had like a really good, capable team, serious people that had had success outside of crypto. And like, You know, it just kind of, it was hard. It was hard to poke through it and be like, oh, wait, this is all bullshit. Like you you couldn't see it right (laughs) away. And then, okay, so do we get to the Jimmy story now? Because this is where we are.
0: No, 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 no. Let's let's go back because you covered a whole ton of stuff. And I want to explore that. And there's, you were saying during your story, there's a lot of threads to pull on there. So one pattern that I'm kind of seeing with your career is that you kind of have a really good nose for bullshit which is which is honestly kind of rare. And you know, even like your foray into broadcast journalism and stuff, and like kind of seeing, okay, well, it's not what I thought it was. and sort of like being dissatisfied with that and then going into this very large corporate environment with many different companies, probably some of the best jobs that you know anyone from college at uh, any college graduate from that time wanted. I mean, you've had all of them and yet it was unsatisfactory. Tell me more about that. Why were these sort of like not what you thought what they were and what what was so dissatisfying about, about these jobs?
1: Well, the, yeah, I think we can tell this just through the story of Google because that was kind of the last mm. gasp. I was like, okay, mm. if I'm going to try big companies one more time, because after leaving McKenzie, I actually started my own private equity consulting firm and had like a nice mm. run during the tail end of the bubble there from like 06 to 08. And mm. so going to Google for me was I, it was actually the first time that I was strategic about a career move because I did see it as a way to get into startups potentially, mm. but I also option B was, you know, this is the company that everybody says is the best big company to work for. It has this amazing culture. It's not being evil and all this stuff. The perks are amazing. You know, the people are actually pretty spectacular, you know? So if I don't like it at Google, then I know I'm done with big companies and Mm. that that ended up being the case like you know I Mm. I did good work there and I did some cool shit and there were some good people around and I still felt like insanely constrained and you're just artificially put into a weird rat race because if you have invented before Bitcoin the best product in the history of the world which is Mm. search Basically, Mm -hmm. and the way they monetize is just like the most incredible product. It makes no sense to put anybody in a role unless they do that role perfectly. Overpay Mm -hmm. slightly for everybody and make sure they do their role perfectly. So what you end up with at Google, at least in that time, I don't know what it's like now because obviously there's a lot more companies with with shine on them now. But back then, uh, everybody was overqualified for their job at every level. And so it created this sort of like weird competition of like, to move up. I mean, you had to be doing like the work of like six people. Mm. And then it also became super political to mm. to move up or get to work on interesting things. And I could do all that. And I did, but I don't like mm. it. That's not <laughs> not how I want to spend my time, is like strategizing about like how many hugs to give at a happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like how like what's the right number of smiley faces at the end of your emails.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, did you experience that in the previous companies as well? Because like that for me is like, it just sounds so miserable, like figuring out
1: what the right political play is within a company. No, I'd say out of, out of like comparing those four companies, like Google was Mm. by far the most sort of rigid in its culture of conformity. Mm. What sort of conformity did they expect? I would say it was. Yeah, just being like sature and sweet all the time, basically. Mm. <laughs> it was it was extremely feminine, the mm. the culture and just the vibe and everything was like over the top, like just it felt weird being a guy there. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it
0: mostly men at least in engineering and stuff? Yeah,
1: I was on the business side though, mm. so the sales org, the whole business organization is is like overtly like liberal woke feminine Mm. anyway so that that was you know not the most fun mckenzie was incredibly professional i really Mm. appreciated the i it was just i was you know was it square peg in a round hole Mm -hmm. at that time in my life i was newly single for the first time in like seven years or something after dating my college girlfriend far too long and (laughs) I was like <laughs> I had moved to New York for this job with Mackenzie and the last thing I wanted to do was leave town Monday through Thursday. So mm. I got out of that as soon as I possibly could and opened up a restaurant nightclub and started my private equity consulting business.
0: <laughs> wow. So you were really taking the bull by the horns. Uh, opening up your own club. I mean, like yeah. if, if, you, if you if you're single, that's yes. That's uh, you know, like a lot of fun. So
1: Yeah, that was I was almost terminally single from like 26 to 32. And then I met my wife.
0: What does that mean? Terminally single. I'm I'm like, it was going to kill me.
1: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So I got rescued. I got rescued by my wife. Basically. She pulled me, pulled me out of the scene and gave me a reason to, you know, focus on lower time preference activities.
0: Well, I've heard that about New York. What is it about New York that makes you sort of like just like party really hard almost to the point of death? Because I you're not the first person to tell me (laughs) that. Well,
1: I had actually already I had actually left New York. The the restaurant Mm -hmm. nightclub was in Chicago and Mm -hmm. my private equity consulting thing was in Chicago and and I actually joined Mm -hmm. Google in Chicago. Mm -hmm. But yeah, similar. I I learned how to do it in New York and then I exported it to Chicago. (laughs) Uh, Chicago at that those years in particular, kind of like the the middle of the aughts into kind of mm-hmm. the early teens where it was a really fun time in Chicago. There was so much money everywhere, which is why I kind of understand what's going on in the whole crypto space the last few years, because I saw it once with people mm-hmm. that really didn't have the merit to make the money that they were, but because they were in Chicago and they were doing options trading during the options boom. Mm. And all the black box stuff. And this was like, you know, flash boys, that was that time. So the, you know, the, the, fastest comms line from Chicago to New York was, was who won with the black box trading and the, the super fast algos and all that kind of stuff. So that money was just like a wash all through Chicago. Something else that was kind of fun is like Chicago's the, you know, probably the biggest city that doesn't have an extra stratified layer of society. On top Mm. right so like Mm. the private spaces with the celebs and the rich people are not accessible to the normies in new york or in la but Mm. in chicago there is no extra layer so if you're like out and about and you make six figures and can afford the drinks like you're hanging out with michael jordan Mm. which makes it (laughs) super fun
0: Well, so let's go back a little bit because I want to pull on this thread about this options trading and how, you know, the city essentially was awash with money. What happened there? Can you describe the options boom? And I don't really know anything about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just, I wasn't a trader myself, but, you know, if you were kind of in the mix and, you know, River North and Gold Coast and Chicago in, you know, 2005, 2003, probably through about... Through the financial crisis, so 2003 to 2008, there were just a lot of young, cool people with shit tons of money. Mm. So, you know, there was just like fun boats and private planes and trips to Vegas, and everybody's in Miami every weekend all winter, and you know, plenty of funding for all new nightclubs and restaurants, and just kind of this rolling party. And then Lollapalooza came, I think, in uh, '06, and and so those first those first. Th- you know, three, four years of having Lollapalooza there in the summer as kind of an anchor was really cool with everybody coming and kind of experiencing this boom. Crime was way down at the time. Obviously it's skyrocketed since, you know, and it was just kind of a boom time for that city. Kanye was everywhere, you know, being super popular, talking about Chicago all the time. Like it was just kind of, you know, it's when that city kind of peaked and it was cool to be there at the time.
0: Well, so you're saying that there was all this money from the options boom. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm trying to like figure out where that came from. Was it because of, you know, like figuring out how to repackage them or like what was going on? What Mm. what made all this money flow in?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it was just that was where people first started doing like high frequency trading with options and futures was... Mm. You know, it, you wanted to be right next to the SIBO and the CME so that you'd have the fastest comms time. And then sometimes you'd have somebody like in the pit too to, you know, carry out special trades or operations or something like that. So a lot of these firms, you know, the Citadels and all these guys that started in Chicago, Gecko, uh, you know, third millennium, like they all kind of started there around just right there in the loop to have the mm. the fastest round trip times <laughs> of uh, mm. for their trading. Anyway, it's not my world. I just kind of witnessed mm. it from afar and had a lot of friends working in that industry. But yeah, that's just when that's when the ARBs were highest. And then it got ARBed away, you know, little by little, mm. it just kind of, there were so many participants and the boom kind of went away over time. And I think, you know, 2008 was like the last time, you know, some smart kids a few years out of undergrad could, you know, 10x their money in a year or something like that.
0: Hmm. Well, so you were around at that time. And uh, you, you mentioned earlier that you have a much better understanding of the entire crypto space, because you were there at that time. What was it about that time that You remember that you can sort of like analog
1: or make an analogy to the same participants, (laughs) right? So Jump is in Chicago, and that's how they grew up, and they were doing algo trading and options, and it's and it's still around. I was aware of Jump because they were investing in startups when I was at Google, so I would see Jump Mm -hmm. people at startup events and everything, and you know they're probably made more money than anybody last year. I think they made eight or nine billion dollars last year. You know, doing market Mm. making for Luna and UST and all the other stuff they do, you know, and I think Cumberland has a big office there. Uh, You know, there's a bunch of these guys that are kind of at the center of crypto in Mm. Chicago because all that infrastructure and all that talent base has always been there. And then there's a big diaspora of people that left Chicago and went other places after the option boom was done and they recognized that you know, there was boom time coming back and they got into crypto. So like, I've got a friend who made a killing on options and then, you know, traveled and hung out, opened CrossFit gyms, got jacked, crypto comes around, he's running the desk for Cumberland up in Montreal for three years. (laughs) (laughs) And now he's starting a crypto hedge fund, you know? So Mm. I think it's just, there's a lot of ad tech people in crypto. There's a lot of Mm. Trading people in crypto that that come from traditional trading and prop trading, and then I think there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of people with uh, online poker backgrounds and online ga- <laughs> and online gambling, right? Just people. Mm. I think those those three groups from you know 15 years ago are all over the crypto space.
0: And, and were they all in Chicago at that time, or is it just uh, that?
1: It- no, no. Ad tech was much more like s f l a New York and Russia mm. <laughs> there's a lot of similarities with ad tech and crypto because the 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 big scam in ad tech is that there's limitless ad inventory on the internet, mm. right So how do you make something mm-hmm. that's limitless seem scarce? You have to market the shit out of it. Does that sound like crypto? Uh, yeah, yeah, it does actually,
0: yeah, huh. So, you observed all of this and then uh and then you went over to Google, had this uh interesting experience. What made you i guess go into startups of all things so why why was that super interesting? Today?
1: Yeah, again, I think it was just you know having seen what happened with the global financial crisis, and I just didn't want to be mm-hmm. sort of I didn't want the sand shifting beneath my feet, you know, I didn't want to get mm-hmm. rug pulled, so I figured if I had like a diverse set of activities in early stage companies where I could affect the outcome through the force mm-hmm. of, like, my, my ideas, my networking, my strategy, my effort, mm-hmm. then I could control my own destiny, which is what I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm.
0: So you went to basically be your own boss yeah. or something like that? Yeah, starting in
1: 2013. Okay.
0: So tell me about, like, what your experience, I guess, as a VC was or an angel investor yeah. or whatever you want to call yourself.
1: Yeah, I would say I was, like, an angel investor and advisor, basically, which mm-hmm. I am still to this day. Mm. And, you know, it's funny, in in retrospect, what I realized I did is I I actually had a full seven-year apprenticeship, (laughs) you know, because I sought relationships with founders that I was impressed by. I worked almost exclusively with product and engineering-focused founders where I could complement them a little bit. The niche Mm -hmm. was great because I always worked with like series, you know, seed and A startups, occasionally like a B, which was the time when... They couldn't afford to bring somebody like me on full-time or I would have been like a a co-founder, right? Um, And Mm -hmm. it would have to be like a full-time thing, but they needed some of that. So I would work with, you know, three to six companies at a time for varying chunks of cash and equity and and just help them get to the next level. You know, sometimes I'd work with a company for like three plus years. Sometimes it would be six months, whatever, but I'd be kind of just helping get them to the next level.
0: And what was your role in helping them? What
1: what were you bringing to the table for them? So, I think it was the the strategy toolkit which I'd been mm-hmm. developing, obviously since business school, and then working at McKinsey and doing another. I did seven years of management consulting, basically including the private equity stuff. So nine years, basically, of strategy work, and I had a strategy role at Google. I was I was strategy and operations for about two billion dollars of sales across. 17 teams for those two years. So yeah, I think it was just, that just means looking across all the functions, thinking about you know where you're trying to get to, thinking about what you need to have in place to be able to get to those goals, positioning the company, what's your messaging, who's the right investor, what team member do you need now versus putting it off for nine months? How do you think about fundraising and who's gonna do the round after that? Should you do a a safe or a convert right now? What are the benefits of each? Should you do a priced equity round right now or wait a little bit? Should you announce this product now or not? Should you hire this PR firm or that PR firm? Like it's, it's everything. I basically, I just restricted it by, I will only be in a meeting that the CEO attends. So I would never Mm. get involved with a function, which basically put a, a constraint on the level of issues on which I would work. It had to be Mm. important enough for the CEO to want to talk about it and meet about it, meet about it, or I wouldn't work on it.
0: Mm, I see. And and what did you see there that, I mean, did you like it? It sounded like you liked it.
1: I loved it. it, Yeah. It was was crazy fun. It it was really lucrative. I ended up, Mm -hmm. I think just because I, I just was trying, I don't think I was like, I was really worried for the first few years that I would have adverse selection. Like, if these people, if they need my help, does that mean they suck? Right? <laughs> and so, am I going to end up with this portfolio of you know shitcoin startups, basically? <laughs> you know, and and basically, what I realized is that actually the I really ended up working mostly with founders who'd have pre, who'd had previous exits and who mm-hmm. actually understood the value of going much faster and that doing something 10% better can have like a 10X delta in the outcome. Mm. And so they, especially in the early days when they didn't have this full team with a, you know a full C-suite and a bunch of VPs and everything, like having somebody that they could just talk to about all of the issues related to the company was really valuable to them. So I ended up working with a lot of more like, they were always kind of on the older side almost always like 35 plus, like 35 to 45. And, you know, kind of just a really respectful and kind of deep relationship and partnership with these people. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I was still doing it when I got into Bitcoin, right? Mm. I was still, I was still taking clients and taking equity for advising. Like I spent six months at the tail end of 2019, all the way through April of 2020, like 50, I think we severed my, my contract and my equity vesting with, uh, unchained capital on like April 15th of 2020, which was like 15 days after Swan launched. <laughs> but wow. I've been working with Joe, you know, three times a week, just working mm-hmm. on unchained issues back then. Hmm.
0: Well all right so let's get to your bitcoin origin story. You're in the startup world, you're advising a lot of different companies, you're helping them out and you're spread actually kind of thin, right? Cuz you got six different companies, you're you're doing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. What what got you interested?
1: The price run up and <laughs> no, I mean so I'll tell you the it was very clear. The the signal that got me into crypto was super clear and mm-hmm. then we'll get to what made me start looking at Bitcoin specifically and, and made it rise mm-hmm. above the rest. It was May 26th or something like that, 23rd to 26th. It was, I think, the first day of consensus in New York. I was in LA. I had a call scheduled with a guy who had, you know, one of the best seats in venture capital, as far as I could tell. He was like the sole deployer of capital for one of the Didi Kawhi founders mm-hmm. over in China. He was a guy from SF. And, um, and he could cut checks basically of like five to 50 million on any deal that he liked with an investment committee of two. Oh, wow. (laughs) You know, and the other, and the guy was in China. So he basically Mm. just operated out of SF, just have coffees with people, find deals. He liked no overhead, no investment committee and, you know, 20% rip on profits for these deals. He did the guy. I was like, Mm. I, I always thought this guy had the best fucking job. And, uh, <laughs> and so I call him and like, there's so much noise in the background and he's like, oh yeah, sorry. I quit. I'm, I'm running <laughs> uh, business development for this, uh, crypto found, you know, crypto company. I'm like, what? Uh-huh. Anyway, it, it ended up being, <laughs> what was the project? It was seven Waterhouse's thing. Steven Waterhouse. What was it? Mesh labs. I think back then, I think they renamed it orchid anyway, <laughs> you know, and I was like, if this guy's leaving, what I thought was the best job to not even be go no the, go be the number one, but be like the number four at this other thing. What's this other thing? So then I started just pinging people in my network and trying to figure out what this whole crypto thing is. Started reading, downloaded Coinbase and bought some Bitcoin like almost immediately. I think before the end of May, I bought Bitcoin at mm. you know three k or something, and you know was just starting to learn. I got really lucky. And this was kind of, at least there was, there was an inkling that Bitcoin might be special because who did I hit up? Somebody connected me to phew, Tucker Waterman. who's was like a crypto fund manager out here in LA, very Winklevoss looking dude, tall, probably mm. went to Dartmouth or Harvard or something. Anyway, they had just run, you know, like a million up to 17 million in like a year before I met mm. him, him and like a real estate buddy of his. <laughs> and, But he he was like, you got to go to China all the time. You got to figure out who's like pumping things and Mm -hmm. you need to start with Bitcoin and you should read digital gold. Mm -hmm. And so I read digital gold. And so that was like the first thing I didn't get into. I didn't get into Andreas until after meeting you. Hmm. I didn't find Andreas until what was that? So we met at, um, let's just roll right into that. So I'm, so, I'm not working in crypto. I'm reading, I'm, you mm-hmm. know, reading blockchain books by dumbasses and thinking that it's real. <laughs> I'm like searching around, like, what's going on here? How does this work? I finally, like, oh God, how did it work? Somebody knew, oh, I know what it was. I was working on a startup and the startup wanted me to meet the block V guys because they wanted to do something with like their NFT thing. This is like Mm. October of 2017. And so I go down there, they're impressive guys. They had like five CTOs, guys that had run huge divisions for European telecoms. Like there was nothing to indicate to me without knowing what crypto was, that this wasn't like a totally legit pursuit, Mm. you know, like it just seemed seemed as real as anything else I was doing in startups. Then the next meeting was like probably the end of September and the guy, it was, it was Eric Pellier who was one of the two guys running block V and he had us meet him at his apartment down the street. That apartment was the penthouse on ocean Avenue that he had lent to Brock Pierce Mm. to run (laughs) DNA out of and DNA was like, It was starting like that week. That's when it was starting. Basically, it was like the last week of September. And he had gotten this guy, you know, James Glasscock, who is a great dude, really nice guy and kudos to him for getting the F out, you know, five, six months later, that guy had been like, uh, you know, executive at Warner's and a bunch of the studios and built huge teams. And he was like kind of a full stack human, cares about people, like very empathetic, like very nice guy. And that's who was running this thing. Brock really wasn't present. I, I met James. I liked him. I was already angling toward consulting for Block V, which I did. I think I started there mid-October, probably. It was either mid-October or mid-November that I started consulting to them, like help, helping them figure out how to spend the $30 million or whatever that they'd raised in their ICO. And so I started like trying to angle, like, is there something that I can do here? These guys are raising money. There's lawyers all over the place. This feels kind of solid. You know, you don't, you don't, until you actually get into the factory and see how the sausage is made. It's very hard to just, it wasn't then because there was no, there was no Marty podcast. There was no Stefan podcast. There was no safe book. Like there was nothing really out there except crypto noise that I could find. I couldn't find any of this Bitcoin signal at the time. And nobody took me aside to explain it to me. So I remember, I remember a couple of things. I remember one day there was like a bunch of people up in the penthouse. Maybe it was like before Burning Man or something. So everybody comes to LA before they go to the desert. And, uh, and one person who clearly understood Bitcoin listened to my dumb ass pitch about friction tokens and explained <laughs> that friction tokens are stupid and can't work. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I have to throw away the last four months. Great. So that's nice. And then, within, <laughs> you know, I think... It was, what was that guy's name? Kumar? Kurt Kumar? Yeah. BlockCon. Yeah. Block so BlockCon mm-hmm. 2017. I've told this story on podcasts before, but I've never told it with Jimmy. So this will be fun. I really got to <laughs> dial it in. And like, I'm going to try to make this like, it, it's very dramatic in my head. I actually have like mental <laughs> images and very photographic memory of this whole thing. So, so this conference is at the, uh, the airport museum at the Santa Monica airport. And it's a blockchain conference and you know there's like blockchain speakers i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure celsius i think alex was there pitching his celsius ico under false pretenses and, uh, <laughs> wow it's that old i didn't realize he 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 pitched it in either 17 or 18 i went both years i went uh-huh. 2017 and 2018 i think he was pitching his ico in 2017 because he had to have raised it in 2018 before the bear market so i think mm. he was pitching it in 2017 Anyway, so yeah, I think that was part of his roadshow for sell, for sell token, sell your sell tokens guys. (laughs) So I, you know, I think it was, it was, was it a two day thing or a one day thing? I can't remember. Might have just been, it was one day. It was just one day. So yeah, so I get through the morning. I'm like, you know, going to different booths and learning about like fucking Bermuda shell companies from this guy and like, (laughs) you know, some amazing token economics on this insider deal over here and like, you know, listening to like, you know, intellectual people talking from the stage, talking about things mm-hmm. that I don't understand that feel fair, you know, fairly jargony, but you know, Hey, it could be it. Yeah. Fuck do I know these people have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, Geo star is, is rolling around in her platform heels and like a V a V-neck down <laughs> to her past her belly button. Not kidding, but she was actually there. I don't know if you remember that. Anyway, oh, I totally remember, totally remember that. Yeah. It. So uh, yeah. Yeah. At some point, it's like it's probably like lunchtime or whatever, and I don't know if I grabbed a stupid lunch or what, but you know, I, I go outside and I'm like, it's nice, it's sunny. There's this big lawn with like a, a plane up on stilts uh, out in front of the the, the conference center, and uh, I'm kind of just looking around. There's people in different groups or whatever, and like this this one group caught my eye. It was only like two or three. It was probably three people in a circle, and and one of them has this <laughs> has this cowboy hat on. And he's I see him looking at two different people like that are elsewhere around just with fucking daggers coming out of his eyes. Like he just kind (laughs) of wishes that he could just, you know, like maybe this was the old days and he could just, you know, run them through right now. I was like, well, I find that very interesting and attractive. Let's see what this dude's about that that clearly has some some true loathing and hate for some of the other people here. There's signal in that. And I came over and introduced myself and probably said some dumb shit about crypto. And you were like, well, <laughs> you know, I've got a show. I really okay. like Bitcoin. <laughs> you should really you should really take another look at Bitcoin and like, you know, try to go deep on that. It really is like, you were so nice. Like, we're not as nice anymore. I get that. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually worse than you now. But back then you were very understanding of, I, I think I was just like, probably, you know, rather earnest and probably pretty open, because I usually am. And I was kind of laying it on the table what I thought. And you were just kind of like gently redirecting me, but very firm, that I needed to spend a lot of time on Bitcoin. And then I started watching you in town over the next few Mm -hmm. weeks. And that led me to Andreas, because you guys would always talk about Andreas. And then I went down the whole Andreas rabbit hole and it took a while because it was like there was so much activity going on in in crypto for me at the time I was working on that everpedia deal that where they took the thirty million and uh, for equity from uh, from the new galaxy EOS fund <laughs> <laughs> right right <laughs> so they would build on eOS and then yeah it finally hit i I don't know what the last thing was, but like by like the third or fourth week of March, I was like, oh my God I'm never gonna read another white paper again I'm so done with this." <laughs> And, but I was like, James had just left and Brock and Scott asked me to run the thing basically to be president and CIO. And Dave Seamer, who runs Wave Financial now, who was one of my classmates from Chicago, was thinking about coming over as CEO, which he did by like May. And I didn't want anything to do with the fundraising and the ICO stuff anymore, but they let me start a consulting company, which I was like relatively like a consulting division, which I was relatively okay with, like, let's help these guys spend this money. And I also didn't have to do any of the work. I just had to like hire the team. So Mm -hmm. I basically, it was, it was probably by end of July I think I just like left at the end, at the end of July. So it was probably like the mm-hmm. first week of August that I was like finally done. Oh, I know what it was. I, I tried one last gasp. I was like, I like this money. This money is great. Uh, <laughs> can I do a Bitcoin ecosystem fund under this brand? And I tried, and I was actually working with Steve Lee Moneyball, wow. mm-hmm. uh, who's at Spiral, and Dan Held, uh, mm-hmm. who I had met, and a couple other people trying to do a Bitcoin ecosystem fund. Under under the DNA brand, <laughs> it would have been a slight mismatch. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and that that clearly wasn't going to happen. And so I left. Uh, yeah, like beginning of August, and as I do every summer, went to Turkey with my wife, where she's from. And when I came back, I was just dead set on doing something in Bitcoin. Didn't know what it would be, but uh, I just wanted to do something in Bitcoin. And I was still consulting to totally non-crypto, non-Bitcoin startups, still working with SaaS companies and ad tech companies and stuff like that. But I I was just dead set that at some point, as soon as I could figure out what to do, that I would do a Hmm. company in Bitcoin.
0: Hmm. It's interesting hearing your perspective, because I do remember LA BlockCon and just thinking, what did I sign myself up for? Because for me, that was the that was the second conference that I was asked to speak at and the first one was like just a month before in Paris and it was what was it the Breaking Bitcoin conference mm-hmm. and it was it, it that, that was actually a really good conference because we're talking about Bitcoin only there were some altcoiners or whatever there and um you know I mostly just sort of avoided them but you know the LA Blockcon that that was just <laughs> I mean, I I remember looking at the program and going, wow, they're clearly selling something. They're selling something. They're selling. And I went through and I was like, I think it's just me and Tone that are Bitcoin people. Mm -hmm. I was like, how did it end up like this? And literally everybody that came up was talking about an altcoin that they wanted either my opinion on or like, something like that so for me like like that whole thing was just like my education into okay so this is what the altcoin space is like Mm because they were like every single presenter it felt like was a timeshare presentation right like it's like what what are they trying to sell me and what do i have like i i just it it just felt so dirty you know, I, I mean, I did give my presentation and so on, but it was just kind of, it felt so out of place. I, I don't know. Like it was it like that for you or was it just like my impression was completely off. I, I like for me, like watching that, it was just so, and I, I think you well, detected, I didn't, like, I didn't know
1: yet. That, I didn't know yet that altcoins were bullshit. So it, mm. it looked like startup pitches to me. And, mm. you know, I thought the market was hot and you look at like you know, product market team and timing. It seemed like this stuff Mm -hmm. was like on the come. So timing is good. Market is hot. So check. So then Mm -hmm. I was basically just looking at like, do I like this founder's personality and are they smart? And, Mm -hmm. you know, do they have a good product? I was completely incapable of evaluating the product. If I had, I would have run away and just started working on Bitcoin right away. (laughs) I just didn't know shit. So I was basically just, So that was a big question mark market Mm. and timing were good. So I was just basically looking at, you know, founders and seeing like, okay, is this somebody I'd like to spend time with? Are they smart? And, you know, are they earnest or whatever? Do they have like a real plan? Are there red flags or not? And there were tons of people that had like tons of red flags, but I see that in startups all the time too. So just Mm. because there were lots of scammers raising for money, raising money for things that you know, obviously weren't going to work. That didn't signal to me for another few months, at least that they were all bullshit.
0: (laughs) It's so interesting to me because I think I had that same conversation that I had with you with like, like 20 other people that same day, right? It it was just, they. maybe you were
1: patient zero for Bitcoin in SoCal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, I don't know. I, I remember saying similar things to nearly everybody that I met, because so many of them would be like, hey, like, what do you think of this token or that token? And I, I mean, uh, I I'd get asked to like, uh, go review a white paper or something like that. And I'd be like, okay, if you want me to do it, I will, but you can't use my name or likeness, and I'm going to charge you some insane amount of money." and some of them actually were like agreed to do it. And I was like, you, you sure about this? Cause I'm going to rip this apart. And they're like, no, we, we want to know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I would rip it apart and give them the report and they would be depressed afterwards. It, it, it was kind of, it, it was such a strange dynamic, but like that whole conference just felt very, I felt like I was in wonderland a little bit. And it's like, what is going on? Like, how are all of these people not seeing what I'm seeing? Cause i am seeing because you read the white paper and it's like that's clearly not going to work that's not going to work that's not going to work how how are you supposed to do something like that and they throw the word decentralized around like it can you can just conjure it up out of a hat or something it was such a so let me ask you this way like when you started evaluating these things and when you'd read a white paper i guess back back then Like, what were you seeing or were you not really reading the white papers and were you using other signals to figure out? I
1: wasn't really going, I mean, I I didn't understand uh the technology and I wasn't going very deep Mm -hmm. on it. I was basically Mm. just like, you know, in some ways, ah, this is probably, I don't know if I ever put this together. In some ways, my training in, because I was doing like strategy and fundraising advising in startups the kickoff point for each of those is like, where do you want to be in a couple of years? And it's usually tied to a funding round, right? Mm-hmm. It w- I would get involved with like a post seed company and I'd mm-hmm. talk to the VC and the founder and they'd be like, you know, in the next 18 months, we want to get through an A round and we want to be like, you know, maybe get through a B round or be teed up for, for a B round or something like that. And so I'd kind of work backwards from that. And so I was, it's funny, I was always kind of looking like, how is this positioned to be able to raise money? Mm. So my my skill set and my background and like my frame of reference was almost perfectly suited to put blinders on the sides of my eyes and only be thinking about like, is this something that I could raise money for? Mm. I was like a mm. almost a perfect tool for that. <laughs> so I think that's probably what it was, like because I, w- I wasn't going deep and like diligencing these things. And a lot of the times, you know, even before that, when I was just working in normal startups with, you know, ad tech, SaaS, marketplace type stuff, a lot of it was based on like, do I, do I think this is somebody that I can cross with my network, that I can shape up, that I could help, you know, get over the line to actually raise money, you know, raise a $20 million B round or, a, you know, $3 million seed round or something like that. I need something to work with, right? So, yeah, I think I was probably a little bit confused by by that background. <laughs>
0: well so what was it that actually really turned you from an altcoin crypto guy to a Bitcoin maximalist what was the I do remember
1: thing- I do remember a scary speech from Clayton the then chair of mm-hmm. the SEC in March mm-hmm. of 2018 mm-hmm. so I remember that being like one of the nails in the coffin but I think mostly honestly it was just, a lot of listening to your pod, your YouTube stuff, and then a lot of Andreas and just kind of appreciating Mm. Bitcoin. So for me, it was actually more economics. I don't even think that I necessarily needed to say, oh, that's all crap. What I became enamored of Bitcoin and where I got to is I thought the eventual market cap of Bitcoin would be like a hundred X everything else combined. Mm. And that, and then I also had a lot of, You know, it was a big thing in the teens in VC and startups to complain about being dependent on a platform, right? And that you Mm. didn't want to build on somebody else's platform like Zynga and Facebook and they can just tank you whenever or your business is entirely reliant on like the Google search algorithm. They changed the algo that actually tanked (laughs) like an entire team at Google that was doing like search arbitrage for ask.com and ask Jeeves and, you know, AltaVista Mm. and all those ones that were just sort of arbing Google traffic and you'd see that team just like disappear basically and so i was looking at it a little bit through that lens and i was like well bitcoin is the only platform here i got that far by early 2018 Mm. i was like bitcoin is the only platform here that can't fuck you Mm. and i was able to make that distinction between bitcoin and ethereum at least Mm. and everything else seemed worse than ethereum and then the clayton thing and then you know the 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 deep YouTube research doing my own research on youtube was uh was starting to work, and I think I found like l t b let's talk bitcoin uh podcast archives and was kind of going through and picking and choosing episodes and stuff like that so yeah, I mean, I just kind of got there, and the bear market makes you evaluate what you're doing too, right so I owned a mm-hmm. bunch of shit that I'd bought on binance and had token grants from BlockFi and some other places, and they're all of a sudden you know down seventy percent and you know, Bitcoin's down too, but it seems like it's kind of hanging in. Now, all of a sudden, I completely believe in Bitcoin. And now all of a sudden, I've exchanged all of my shit coins for Bitcoin and not sold any Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And that (laughs) just started to align me. And then all of a sudden, like the rest of us, I just became one of Satoshi's automatons in service of the protocol.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so what I find really fascinating about you, Corey, is that I don't know maybe it's because you've gone through all of it but you you seem to be able to spot the scams and sort of effectively talk about it very early. Uh, so ca- can you tell me a little bit more about say like the this whole luna thing. You were speaking out against it like okay this this thing is going to be a giant disaster. I mean there's no shortage of altcoins that you could have gone after but somehow you you managed to pull this one out and say, okay, this one is going to be the one that's going to be really spectacularly crash. And you were right. What was it about that that you saw? Like, is it from your experience? Is it some instinct you have? What What was it?
1: Yeah, because you're right. Like, I, I don't actually go talking about altcoins at all. The only reason that I got interested in Luna in any way is because they did the, I mean, you know, I hate orange washing. I hate affinity scamming. <laughs> I hate, you know, I love Bitcoin by my shitcoin coin. And I hate charlatans in the Bitcoin space with false narratives. You know, so I, I saw that, you know, plan of the Luna Foundation guard saying that they were going to buy Bitcoin. And I saw a bunch of Bitcoiners, you know, in particular, you know, Pomp pushing this thing super hard. And I just thought it was gross and disgusting and figured Bitcoiners were just about to get used like they often are. So it just made me go a click deeper. Otherwise I wouldn't have bothered, honestly. And then it started to piece together because like, I'm still in BTC nation, which you rage quit years ago. (laughs) Uh, I've stuck it out. It's me and Clark and Dan. That's basically it. And I would, I'd probably consider Brian Estes a a Bitcoiner, Mm -hmm. the off the chain capital guy. And there's probably a few others that are like, Closet Bitcoiners the DM me sometimes and they're like, that was really good. I couldn't tell the group, but good <laughs> job. Keep up the keep up the good fight. But, you know, it's uh so I still have some signal from the crypto world there. You know, we use prime trust for legal custody at Swan, like us and Strike and a bunch of other people kind of have them as the uh, like the compliance back end. So like, I could talk to their salespeople and like it would come up here and there. I also keep an eye on, you know, I, I open Delta app. You know a couple times a week more when things are volatile and just kind of see how things are moving so i can be eloquent if i need to be and you know since november literally everything was in the red except for one coin that just was like charging up the charts which was luna and mm-hmm. and then you would also see the uh, you would see the ust market cap going up so that was also in the back of my mind and it was like oh this one that's talking about bitcoin now is the one that you know is the only one that hasn't had a bear market like the rest what's going on here Mm. It took 45 minutes to spot the scam, maybe (laughs) less. Mm. It was that simple once, because basically what What the thread that I pulled on was why, who benefits from topping up this reserve, this 20% on anchor who benefits from that, right? Like why is jump and whoever else, why is Luna foundation guard? Why are they putting money? That's just draining you know one to six million dollars a day they're just giving people this money what do they get out of it and that's when you look at like oh they must be trying to pump the price of something over here with the other hand right and it's because they all had such you know f- massive piles of free or cheap luna tokens and the market was interpreting a rising ust market cap like more more money stored in this algo stable coin as positive for Luna and it would pump the price of Luna. It was actually like high beta to so USD would go up like a billion and the market cap of Luna would go up like 2 billion. And so it was like sitting there in like the 40 billion, something market cap for Luna. And these guys are just selling their tokens right into that pump. Hmm. Right. And so they were just, you know, doing a calculation. It's worth it to put another billion dollars of bribes into the anchor reserve and pay it out at that 20% interest rate because they can make way more money selling their free Luna tokens. Mm. So once I figured that out, I was like, oh my God, this, and that was before I even saw a video of Doke. And then I saw a video of this guy, you know, on a podcast and I was like, oh my God, this dude. And that's when I tweeted on April 3rd Mm -hmm. and I got so much heat for this, man. I had people coming after me like Bitcoiners, by the way, not just altcoiners Mm -hmm. and Luna fans, but Mm -hmm. a lot of people coming after me after uh, April 3rd, when I tweeted major Elizabeth Holmes vibes from this guy, you know, I don't know the truth, but 99.99% of the time when somebody talks the way this guy does, he's a complete and total fraud. So I left a chance that he wasn't one in 10,000 chance. <laughs> and then, of course, like all the national media that I've been doing lately, like we've got like Fox News and Wall Street Journal and all this crap the last week is basically because I went on Coindesk last Monday at like 6 a.m. Pacific and predicted the collapse and said, you know, basically it could happen today, could happen tomorrow, might happen in a few weeks if they somehow escape this it's going to be bad for everybody because it'll be five times bigger when it does collapse, but inevitably it will collapse. And then it collapsed four hours later.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that that was quite prescient. You do seem to have like this uh, sense of how to spot the scammer almost. I, I don't know if that's been fine-tuned since you've become a Bitcoin maximalist or if it's something, if it's a skill that you had before. What was it about Doquan that Like sort of
1: well, it's it's a bit of both. I'd say I'd say you know I started raising money in two thousand four. So I first Mm. started out raising money for like nightclubs and restaurants and real estate funds and film funds, like wherever I could get a finder's fee, just because I was out and about a lot and I enjoyed it. And I could put together a model, I could put together a deck. So it was just kind of like something fun to do as a result of having gone through business school that I couldn't do before. So it was fun to kind of flex that muscle and do it. I had a network now and I could get into money circles and like, it was, it was just something for a little extra cash. That was fun. And you to get access to things. Like if you, you know, I've had a great relationship with the guys that started 10 June for 18 years. And if I wanted to go to catch this afternoon and there were no reservations, I could probably text a few people and get a, get a group in there. Cause I, helped fund their very first club in New York in 2005 or whatever. Right. So there's something about that. What happens when you're doing that is like you butt up against all the other middlemen. You Mm. get to know all the other people with deals because they're (laughs) always trying to sell you on their deals. And so, and then you meet all the people that are pitching things. And, and so, yeah, you develop like very quickly kind of a sense of like who's real and who's not and who's a waste of time and who's not and which guy will actually pay out and which won't. And like, you know, you, and you see a lot of shit, you know? Mm. I mean, I, I got hit from like three different sides in 2007 in Chicago. At least three different people pitched me on starting my own hedge fund that would return 12% every year and I could take a 1% on top of that. Mm. It was all made off.
0: <laughs> it was all rolling
1: up to Madoff. Basically at the tail end of that Ponzi, they needed so much money that they just like sent agents out into all the metros around the country and were just offering you know, any local celebrity, former athlete, whatever, you know, you can get your friends into this hedge fund Mm. and you can make money off of that. (laughs) Wow! So, so I saw a lot of that. And then, you know, I think the other thing is probably just like, you know, I, I threw parties for so long and I never took money for it. I was never a paid promoter, but I threw parties for a long time, you know, starting in undergrad and all through grad school. And, you know, I would just always like Find a charity and have some reason to throw a party. Somebody's birthday. Somebody's whatever. It's just like fun, fun to host. You have more fun when you get to control the guest list. You don't have to mm. associate people with you know. You don't have to associate with people you don't like if you throw the party. <laughs> and so I've always <laughs> been kind of true? very selective about who I actually hang out with. And I want to throw a party with the right mix of people and the right ratios and the right music and the right venue and you know all, all the right associations. And I pay a lot of attention to like the vibe and how people are getting along. And so I think I just ended up with like a very, you know, it's not, it's not for everybody. It's just my taste, but what's good is because I care about how other people get along with each other. If you're at my party, you're going to like it because I've spent a lot mm. of time thinking about it. And I think that is something that, you know, I don't want Mashinsky at my party and I don't want Do Kwan at my party. So mm. if you like my taste, you don't have to like my taste, but if you do happen to like my taste, you're probably going to like all the other people I like.
0: Hm. Mm-hmm. 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 So you detected in these people, I guess like a, a, a weird vibe and that that was what sort of okay, well th- this is getting th- this is going to be super spectacular in how they Well with Do
1: Quan, it was it was uh, the vibe was second. The first thing was just, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. who's benefiting from this and then you could you could mm-hmm. spot the ponzi really easily with the anchor thing. So that one was actually like ridiculously obvious. And I don't believe, (laughs) I don't believe 90% of the people in the crypto space, all these funds and everything that they couldn't see it. Mm. I think that they were just trying to keep it going as long as they could because they could lever up and, you know, get 80% out of that anchor protocol. And, you know, basically everybody was benefiting as long as the price of Luna kept going up. So as long as they could keep people buying Luna, they could keep making that money as long as possible. Very similar to like, you know, if one shop has sold a bunch of out of the money calls on Bitcoin, Mm. you know, there's some amount of money that they're going to keep throwing on leverage shorts to slam the price down whenever it gets close to where they've written most of their calls. Right. Because it's Mm. an income strategy. You saw this in Mm. uh, in uh, spring and early summer of 2020 when it was like, when the fuck is Bitcoin going to break through 12K? (laughs) <laughs> right but there was like billions of dollars that had written call options above 12k that were just clipping that coupon and so it was in the interest of like some of these funds and, and players to keep slamming slamming the brakes whenever bitcoin tried to break through and that's one of the reasons that it ended up you know coiling and springing up so violently when it finally broke through it's because they had been kind of suppressing the price for so long hmm. do you think that's happening now i have no fucking idea what's going on right now Like that kind of stuff is only, (laughs) I only hear about that. I I guess that one actually did get, I did hear that was going on at the time. So I did Mm -hmm. actually tell people that that was going on at the time, probably tweeted about it in like May Mm -hmm. of 2020. But right now this feels just like Fed tightening macro Mm -hmm. people that have way more assets than just Bitcoin and crypto have positions that are meaningful in Bitcoin. And so you know, when they're selling and they're going risk off, then it's happening to Bitcoin too. I just, I think it's just, we've been heavily correlated with, um, the queues for like 18 months the you know, NASDAQ index. And it feels like that's just kind of continuing for now in the long run. It doesn't matter because at some point there'll be some kind of catalyst and the market will just catch and, you know, Bitcoin goes to the moon again, but yeah, in the near term, it feels very, just sort of correlated with, uh, with risk assets and tech stocks.
0: Hmm. Wow. So much to like unpack. You do have this very unique perspective of, I don't know, having gone through it. Uh, One thing I want to know is, do you think the all corners are different from 2017 versus now? Because it, I don't know, like, it seems like at, at least when you were first getting into it, they were maybe a little bit more legit. And they, you know, a lot of them seem the people that you liked anyway, they they seem to have gotten out of it as soon as they figured it out. Like, what about the people, like, how would you compare um, the 2017 crowd versus the 2022 crowd?
1: Hmm. It's, it, they're both sets are f- actually rather diverse. There were a lot of really obvious scammers in 2017, 2018. Particularly 2018, by the way, interestingly, Mm. even during the bull market, like that was when the worst of the sort of late arrivers got there and thought it was like a a way to raise money for a startup. And they just had no idea what blockchain technology was or wasn't so it was easier to kick them out of the pile. I didn't have exposure really to the earnest altcoiners ever because I wasn't in Bitcoin in 2012, 2013, 2014 when some of these people that you could actually ascribe, you know, like best of intentions to, Mm -hmm. you know, like I obviously have gone back and picked up on the history from seeing, you know, some of the ongoing conversations, people like you have had with these folks over the years. And, you know, there's kind of a grudging respect in um, among many Bitcoiners for like things that you know, Roger may have done and then gone wrong or Voorhees may have done well and then gone wrong or whatever. And like, you know, there's there's some appreciation for the role that they played at the time, but I was not a contemporaneous peer to any of those people. Mm. And so I have got, it's it's interesting. It's because it's happening right now, right? So like I've got a, got somebody I've met through YPO recently who, you know, is like left his company that he built And gone straight into DeFi and he's like doing two DeFi protocols, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't understand anything about Bitcoin (laughs) and he's a full proponent of Keynesian economics (laughs) and he's never read a book on Bitcoin, but he's straight to DeFi. And I think there's a lot of people like that and they all think that proof of work is doomed because the government's going to ban it. And they think that money supply has to increase to match GDP growth and population growth and they have all these received narratives that I think are just pushed through crypto circles, or just because they've just never looked into Bitcoin. And I just—it's um, interesting. I think it's just such a massive industry now. They had forty billion dollars of equity capital go into shitcoin companies in the last, you know, fourteen months or so.
0: Mm.
1: You know, versus like a billion for NYDIG, three hundred million for Blockstream everything else probably adds up to like 200 million. So maybe like 1.5 billion for Bitcoin in the last year and a half, Mm. you know, but what's what the reason that doesn't matter is that you don't actually need startups to do anything for Bitcoin. Like Mm. it's good that there are startups and like we are building cool shit and serving needs and stuff, but massive companies adopt Bitcoin. Mm. Right. And massive companies don't adopt shit coins because if you try like, poor Alex and the Fidelity team doing 50 proofs of concept with blockchain and <laughs> Ethereum over four years. We're zero for 50 and shut down the team. Mm. So yeah. we don't need that. Bitcoin always works as intended. And when companies get involved in Bitcoin, like the pilot works and grows and becomes part of their operations.
0: Well, so having walked from, I guess, all coins to Bitcoin maximalism. What what would your advice be to all the people like you described, the ones that kind of went straight to DeFi, are swallowing the Keynesian economic narrative and so on? What what would you tell them, or how would you try to convince them, or would you even try? Didn't I start a company specifically
1: to do this? <laughs> Isn't that the whole point? <laughs> this is true. I mean, literally, the you know, I think it was. You know, the the end of March, I was like, the end of March 2019, I had finally realized like I didn't want to do something with professional investors because I was first working on like a Bitcoin closed in fund with Steve McClurg, the former Guggenheim portfolio manager who now runs Valkyrie. So I was working Mm. on that like fall of 2018, realized I'd have to go to Wall Street and like pitch this to portfolio managers who don't care. And I wanted Mm. people to care. And so I was like, you know what? I don't want to deal with agents. I want to deal with principals. That means it probably has to be like a website and it has to be, you know, one to many use code and media. And this problem I was trying to solve is like, I wish that my shitcoin horseshoe had been shorter. Mm. You know, I wish that somebody had taken me by the horns and pointed me toward the signal. I was ashamed of the 11 months that I spent fooled by crypto. And I was ashamed that the people that I usually looked to For Signal, like Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures, whose words, you know, I hung on their every word when they talked about market networks and SaaS companies and stuff like that, and that they were misleading people, whether they knew it or not. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to try to make it a lot easier for people to find Bitcoin and find Signal and get to the truth faster. So, you know, basically the first product, as you know, and as you remember, was. I want to combine a gift of Bitcoin, which I figured would give people some skin in the game and get them like watching the price and get them interested, with a year of education where they would, you know, basically each month just get a new chapter of a book in 12 parts over their email. And that book would just be, you know, written by the top minds in Bitcoin and just be like a great introduction to Bitcoin. And it was that simple. And I didn't have these grand ambitions for what that would become. I thought it could be like, that it could kind of go viral, that it had its marketing kind of built in because people would, you know, get into Bitcoin through a gift. And then, you know, maybe they'd turn around and give Bitcoin too. And, you know, even as late as like after the launch in November of 2019, you know, I was looking at it and because our prices were lower than Coinbase and Cash App, and you could give to yourself and you could set up a recurring purchase plan as a gift, 90% of the volume was coming from people that were signing up to give Bitcoin to themselves (laughs) and just (laughs) setting up recurring purchase plans for themselves Mm -hmm. with Give Bitcoin. So that was just hilarious. But I was at that point, I was the only person involved out of all the investors and everybody else working on it that wanted to do Swan. The only other person that wanted to do Swan at the time was Jan, who was an advisor and was just like kind of hanging out in the Slack. (laughs) poking his nose into tech and products sometimes. And yeah. So then we got to chatting like the first week of December and he was totally down for it. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's what we're going to do. And, uh, we decided to basically strip, strip away all the gifting stuff. And just, uh, I came up with the Swan name the first week of, uh, January and we got out quick because we had already like, there was no new functionality. We just needed like a new front end and like to skin it and work on the brand basically. So that's why we were able to get Swan out by the end of March, even though we didn't even like think of it early until Christmas.
0: Hmm. Jan. Yeah. Yeah. He was a former student of mine. So I always try to support him and whatever he's doing,
1: but yeah. Oh, well, wow. No, so he, the he, uh, he was still blockchain consulting <laughs> into <laughs> early 2019 or something like that. I mean, I think he, I think he basically quit blockchain consulting for like Chicago financial services firms. When his book came out.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, I do remember him uh, publishing it and all that.
1: Brady used to punt coins on Binance. Brandon Quittam used to do like marketing consulting for blockchain startups. Like, you know, <laughs> like we, we all have our scars, man. <laughs> I think like well, 5% to of people. For. <laughs> we t- totally do. The Church of Satoshi is real. We must <laughs> repent. Um, we might dunk some people in the Pacific uh, at the Bitcoin <laughs> conference in November. But how Sorry. fun is that, man? I, I, I think you're coming. But yeah, November 10th and 11th, the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. It's across the street. It's across the street from where you and I met. We are doing the, the Barker oh, wow. Hanger. It fits like 3,000 people. It's just going to be so much fun. I can't wait mm. for that.
0: Yeah. So tell me more about that. What are your plans for this, this conference? What are you, what's your vision for it? And how is it fitting into, I guess, the current ecosystem?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it'll be, it'll be the second biggest Bitcoin conference each year. <laughs> That's kind of the plan is to, you know, I think it'll be like probably 3000 people this year. And we'd like to expand that up coming years as obviously the, the Bitcoin magazine conference will probably keep getting bigger every year. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think if this one in size feels like Bitcoin 2019 in San Francisco, I think that'll be, A home run that'll feel great, and Mm -hmm. it'll be all Bitcoiners, no altcoin sponsors, no altcoin speakers. So, I think that'll be kind of uh, nice. I think there's a lot of good Bitcoin only conferences, but I don't think there's any that have like the budget that we have and kind of the plans that we have. We're doing it, you know, Bitcoin Magazine is the official media partner, they're bringing the Volcano Desk and all their people, and like it'll be super fun because of my just journalism background and facility with talking to media people. I'm friends with a lot of reporters now that cover the space. And so I think we'll actually have like a lot of, a lot of mainstream journalists and, and journalists that write about Bitcoin will actually be conducting the interviews and, and hosting the panels and stuff. So I think the professionalism on the stage will be really good. And then otherwise, I think we're just going to optimize for having a lot of fun. So obviously the content's <laughs> going to be fantastic. We're all going to learn a lot, but you know, we're going kind of over the top on making it memorable. And I think anybody that comes out or comes down or whatever will make a lot of good memories from the time that they spend there. I want to throw a really good party. I know how to do that. Well,
0: I I mean, you ran a club and you know how to throw a party. So I think given your background, this is right up your alley and it should be really, really fun. Where can people find you? Where can people contact you?
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously check out swan.com app is coming out finally in a few weeks we just got approved by the apple store finally i'm cory Clipton on twitter c-o-r-y-k-l-i-p-p-s-t-e-n and if you listen to jimmy this is already like people pretty far down the funnel so you guys can all email me too if you have any questions for me or about swan it's just uh cory at swan.com and then yeah otherwise oh i have a, a newsletter every day called the daily bitcoiner which just, we've put together like the thousand best pieces of educational content about Bitcoin from the last 12 years. And so one of those goes out each day with a little intro, I'm just kind of talking about why I selected it. Um, so that's cory.substack.com. And yeah, I think that's probably a good mix. <laughs> I, I'd say so. You have a lot of content, so that's, yeah. that's awesome. And if you want a job in Bitcoin, first- Take programming blockchain with Jimmy and then and then go hit Bitcoinerjobs.com and, and get yourself a job in Bitcoin. Yeah. That's how Corey found the CTO. No, um, <laughs> no
0: that's a, that's not exactly true. That's not but, true. I mean that's not true.
1: <laughs> I started as a quick aside before we go, I started Bitcoin or jobs because I was having a problem about a year ago, which was mm. everybody was hitting me up looking for a job in Bitcoin. And like if I like somebody, I have a lot of trouble not helping. And so it started to become like 20% of my time was like tweeting threads of candidates, trying to find <laughs> jobs, introducing them to other companies. I was like, man, I got to find something. So I was going to do something about it. And like, it was just kismet, man. Like within a week I was on this random, you know, like founder speed dating thing that some VC set up and invited me to. And the guy that runs Niceboard was one of the people I met. And it just is like a SaaS tool for making uh job boards for like any, any vertical or niche for like 30 bucks a month. And so we just went hard at it, found Nathan, the guy that runs it for us. And it's now one of our product managers. And we got something out pretty quick and it's obviously just like grown. Now we were actually completely building our own from the ground up. Cause it's a real important part of the Bitcoin ecosystem. But yeah, it was just something that was solving a problem for me. And now it's just like seeing where it's gone is amazing.
0: Yeah, oh, you, you've uh, you've definitely lived up to your reputation as uh, having your hand in a lot of things. So good stuff. Um, anyway, thanks for being on. It was a lot. And I can't believe it's been like an hour and 20 minutes. Almost.
1: <laughs> Man, this was so fun. I, I can't believe I've never been on your show before, but hopefully it won't be the last time.
0: Definitely not. Thanks. All right,
1: thank you. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an
0: advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig collaborative custody or a Bitcoin-native financial services partner, learn more at unchain.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Corey Clipston can be found at at Corey Clipston on Twitter and Corey.substack.com. Until next time. Fiat da Lendez.